Welcome to the sixth episode of the Guernica Accountability Podcast, establishing a framework for prevention. This week, I'll be speaking to Pablo Dugreif. In 2012, Pablo was appointed as the first UN Special Rapporteur on the promotion of truth, justice, reparation, and guarantees of non-recurrence, a position he held until May 2018. In January 2015, he was asked to be part of the UN IIB, a mission of independent experts to address the situation in Burundi. He is presently a member of the UN Secretary-General's Civilian Advisory Board and is Senior Fellow and Director of the Transitional Justice Programme at the Centre for Human Rights and Global Justice at the School of Law at New York University. Prior to joining NYU, he was the Director of Research at the International Centre for Transitional Justice from 2001 to 2014. In December 2018, Pablo was appointed by the President of the UN Human Rights Council as a rapporteur in the group of experts to advise the Council on its prevention role. Pablo is also an advisory member of the Guernica Centre for International Justice. Pablo has been at the forefront of transitional justice mechanisms and initiatives for 35 years. Pablo, uh, welcome, and thank you for making the time to speak to us. On the contrary, Toby, a pleasure, and thank you very much for the invitation. Pablo, obviously you have a, a long career of working in transitional justice in many different areas. And for those of our listeners who are not familiar with all of your work, perhaps you could just give us a summary of some of your most important achievements, what, what you consider to be some of your most important achievements in, in this area. That's uh, tooting one's own horn, which is always difficult. But I think that there are two things that I have tried uh, to achieve. One is uh, to shore up the conceptual foundations of uh, transitional justice, in part because I started working in this field when it had been completely under-theorized. It was a field that we should remember that emerged that emerged from practice and not from the unfurling of uh, theoretical positions or following from uh, uh, long jurisprudential traditions in each of its uh, elements. I think that it needed to uh, be conceptualized in a holistic manner. And I spent a great deal of effort doing that. Secondly, however, my interest was not merely theoretical. It was always, uh, at least in part, uh, practical. I wanted the effects of effective transitional justice policies to be manifested in the world in the belief that they may be of help uh, to victims and uh, to others. And as a consequence, I also tried uh, very hard uh, to improve uh, both the implementation of the measures 
and also their sensitivity to the context in which they were being applied so that they could reach more people and reach them in more effective ways. And uh, I mean, broadly speaking, I think that those are the two areas to which I have devoted most of my efforts. And would you say that your intention was to involve victims and civil society more in the process in a way that hadn't been considered previously? I think that that was one element uh, of it. I, I was always very mindful of the fact uh, that uh, when uh, one looks at transitional processes retrospectively, there is none that uh, ever succeeded without the very, very strong participation of victims and uh, civil society. Uh, governments do not voluntarily implement uh, transitional justice in the sense of doing so spontaneously. Governments are brought there by the pressure of victims and uh, civil society. So one of the things that goes into better implementation is to increase uh, participation. And how effective would you say, looking back as far as 35 years ago, how effective was that victim participation then to how you see it now? I think that we have uh, improved the record in terms of victim participation, but we still have a long way to go. So, for instance, when I was writing a report precisely on this topic for the Human Rights Council during my period as uh, UN Special Rapporteur, there is no comparative analysis of uh, means of participation in any of the basic instruments uh, that transitional justice usually appeals to. And that says a lot about uh, how far we have to go in studying what has worked better and what has worked less well, how we can improve uh, our record. The fact that there is uh, no analysis about this, I find uh, pretty telling. On the other hand, the fact is that most uh, transitional justice measures today uh, incorporate some mechanism of victim participation or are preceded by things like uh, national consultations. So there, is, uh, there has been uh, some uh, progress. But again, I think that there is a long way to go. By the way, I think that this is uh, the same sort of remark that I would make about transitional justice as a whole. I think that this is a field that has accomplished some not insignificant things over the last 35 years, including, for example, its very own consolidation. Everyone that knows the history of the field will remember the long and acrimonious debates between those that defended justice and those that defended truth, as if they were incompatible, mutually exclusionary measures. 
that debate uh, has been uh, overcome and now the field uh, speaks comfortably of being composed of elements that include truth and justice. So the consolidation of the field is itself an important achievement. But much more than that, I think that the field has become normalized in the sense that it is now the perfectly expected sort of policy that countries that are undergoing certain transitions are expected to implement. And for normative change to have occurred in a 30-year span, that, I would say, is also a very significant accomplishment. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's interesting that you you talk about um, the perception of incompatibility between truth and justice. I mean, I think it is one of the hardest uh, concepts to grasp is the, the the importance of knowing the truth as as a component of ensuring a, a justice resolution to a particular situation. I think it is it was certainly one of the aspects that we really struggled with, um, certainly in the early days in Bosnia, um, the, the, the two were um, uh, mutually exclusive. What do you think caused this sudden change of thinking, or, or was it not sudden? Was it more gradual? I think it was a very gradual process, uh, Toby. The way that I look at the history of the field, the Latin American experiences of the Southern Cone loom very large in my understanding of how the field developed. And particularly in Argentina and Chile, I think that truth was sought at first because uh, it was virtually impossible to achieve uh, justice in the sense of uh, criminal justice. But I don't think that in either case, and this uh, there is obviously documentary evidence uh, for this, the Truth Commission in Argentina, the CONADEP, which was established to deal with the problem of illegal disappearances, enforced disappearances, that was not meant to be a substitute uh, for justice in itself. That was not the way that it was uh, conceptualized. It was a sort of temporary measure that was taken by a government that came and uh, faced uh, three different uh, military coups in its uh, efforts to achieve justice. So it knew that there were limits to the speed and the celerity with which it could uh, seek uh, criminal justice. But I don't think that they understood this uh, as a substitute uh, for justice. Now, to reconnect both uh, truth and justice, that is to make them achievable simultaneously, has taken 30 years. But uh, this is, in fact, uh, what has happened. Even the UN-established Commission for El Salvador, an entirely different case uh, than the truth commissions in Chile and in Argentina, it never recommended uh, criminal prosecutions, but not because it had uh, a notion 
that truth was a substitute for justice. The three commissioners very explicitly say in the report that they do not recommend the prosecution of anyone at that point in the country's history because they didn't think that the judiciary was reliable to guarantee justice. Uh, But again, I don't think that there was ever the idea that this was a substitute. In other words, the academic subsequent debate between the defenders of justice and the defenders of truth was in some ways an artificial debate. And uh, it was the artificiality that made it possible for the field to overcome it uh, uh, gradually, but surely. And now that's a debate that no one engages. Now, since, uh, for example, uh, just to illustrate uh, the point, uh, since uh, 2004, when the Secretary General published the report on uh, transitional justice and the rule of law, That report already explicitly talks about transitional justice as a holistic notion that includes truth, justice, reparations, and guarantees of non-recurrence. And that's almost 20 years ago already. So by then, that debate had been completely closed. Do you think that the, the changing nature of conflicts that we've seen over the years has also contributed to a different way to think, a different way to address these issues as well? I don't think that the the changes in context uh, have had uh, sufficient impact, uh, to be perfectly honest. And uh, this is one of my great worries about uh, the state of the field. The model of transitional justice that uh, rests on these four so-called pillars, uh, truth, justice, reparations, and guarantees of non-recurrence, is one that took shape in very strongly institutionalized post-authoritarian contexts. And uh, the four pillars made uh, perfect sense in uh, such contexts. The institutions could bear reform, uh, they could uh, withstand uh, the pressure and the weight of uh, certain programs, including criminal prosecutions. They could bear the costs uh, and uh, have the institutional wherewithal to establish complex uh, reparations programs. And also, these were contexts. Uh, There was a correlation between the degree of institutionalization and uh, the type of violations that took place. In the post-authoritarian context, the conflict, as it were, was very highly asymmetrical, with the state being responsible for the overwhelming majority of the violations. So in a context like that, once a transition takes place, it makes sense to do the sorts of things that we now call transitional justice. When we move from a place like uh, Santiago or Buenos Aires to Kinshasa or Bujumbura, we move into a very, very different context. 
And some of the institutional presuppositions that explained the appearance of the model with the four pillars are absent. And not only that, the type of conflict is completely different. It's not the highly asymmetrical conflict of the uh, authoritarian years. It's a type of conflict with many more agents of violence. Uh, tens of uh, armed groups uh, with a great deal of circulation amongst them where the distinction between the victim and the perpetrator is much harder to establish, where institutions are completely absent from huge, huge parts uh, of the state territory, where the violations as a consequence take uh, a different shape. Uh, they are much more more akin to the consequences of social conflagration than of the abusive exercise of state power. I think that that should have led to the reformulation of the model of transitional justice to make it more applicable in contexts like that. But if one reviews the history, not surprisingly, Salvador and Guatemala, for example, in the Latin American context, have found it much more difficult to implement the model of the four pillars than Argentina and Chile. And in the African context, Sierra Leona and Liberia in the 2000s, Currently, Mali, the DRC, and the CAR, South Sudan, Yemen. This is much harder to do than it was in the post-authoritarian transitions. And I think that this is not a coincidence, that the model was designed for post-authoritarian transitions. And we needed to think harder about what is feasible, what is effective, and what transitional justice can look like in a realistic sense in the new contexts where it is being applied. I think that there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. And unless we do it fast, I actually think that the field is going to lose some credibility. Think about uh, how difficult it has been to establish either a truth commission or uh, a tribunal in the CAR, despite uh, the huge amount of international support uh, that both uh, measures have received, or how difficult it has been to do transitional justice effectively in the DRC. Dr. McQuaggie, the Nobel Prize winner, has been insisting that the 10th anniversary of the United Nations mapping report of uh, violations in the DRC should be used in order to restart efforts to do transitional justice effectively in the DRC. But that says that up to now, very little has been accomplished. And once again, despite huge international support. That's right. I think the, the reference to, to the DRC and CAR, uh, uh, 
are two examples of many where where there has been a, a complete absence of proper and effective intervention. Um, and I think that is it does obviously make things very very difficult. I mean, you mentioned possibly sort of referring to more uh, modern day conflicts where. Uh, the, the entire institutional framework has collapsed, and that's even if it existed in the first place. I'm struck by by two conflicts in particular, Libya and Syria, where exactly in that way that if, if even if there were institutions, they were never effective, and certainly not based on any concept that we would understand as the rule of law. And so sometimes the question is asked because it has not reached that transitional phase. They're still in a period of conflict. And certainly my experience of dealing with Syria was that you've got Syrians on the one hand crying out for a transitional justice discussion, thinking that that is going to solve all of the problems they have. And then you have the international community saying it's too early to talk about transitional justice because the conflict is still raging. When is the right time to have that discussion? Obviously, there's a difference between... Having a discussion or starting a discussion on the one hand uh, and starting uh, the implementation of uh, certain measures. So I think that it is worth uh, starting a discussion early because, in fact, uh, people assume uh, much greater familiarity with uh, transitional justice than there is, in fact, especially in countries that have never had either the need or the opportunity to think about uh, what it evolves. And uh, going back to our first uh, question, uh, I think that participation is important, but of course participation requires a certain level of information. So starting discussions early is not a bad thing. Trying to implement uh, some of the measures when you do not have some of the required institutions, I think is an altogether different uh, thing. And uh, all transitional justice institutions, for example, presuppose a certain degree of safety, of security for citizens. Truth commissions presuppose that people can provide testimony without risking their lives that truth commissioners, the members of the commission, can go anywhere in the country without uh, risk, that evidence uh, is being preserved, not to speak about uh, the equivalent sort of presuppositions for criminal justice uh, investigations and uh, trials, but even for reparations benefits, it is very difficult to, to establish an effective reparations ben a program when, for example, the planners do not have a clear idea of the total universe of victims that they are supposed to serve. And in conflict, of course, uh, there is no total because that universe is still growing. So I think that perhaps one of the downsides of the success of uh, transitional justice is that it created the impression in policymakers' uh, heads, and sometimes uh, on the part of the population as well, that this is a sort of formula that can function under just 
any circumstances. But of course, that is not true. And one, this uh, next point, I mean uh, self-critically. I think that uh, transitional justice practitioners contributed to that misconception. And one of the ways in which we did it was to fail to realize how long a process of transformation actually takes. In the early transitional justice interventions, this was thought of as, let's say, a two to three year intervention. A truth commission is established rapidly, it publishes its report within two years. In the meantime, criminal investigations at the very least start. Perhaps a handful of people are already on trial. A reparations program is established and it starts to operate. And in five years, the magic of transitional justice would have been done. But of course, this was totally naive. Perhaps one of the most interesting experiences uh, I have had in this respect was that in 2010, the World Bank asked me to contribute justice considerations to uh, what became the 2011 World Development Report, which was uh, on uh, security and development. Uh, the bank originally, of course, had not uh, designed uh, the project with that justice dimension, but came to the conclusion that this was important. So I was invited as a consultant to advise the core group on this. In the course of the research that the bank commissioned for that report, there was a very interesting analysis of rates of institutional transformation. So using the World Bank's own governance indicators, uh, it, it was determined that, that, for example, in order to bring a country at the level of development and governance of Haiti to the level of governance of a country, not like Denmark, because that, of course, is a huge deal, but of a country like Ghana, on the basis of the average rate of improvements in uh, the governance indicators that the bank itself uh, articulated, it would take really a generation along the five different uh, criteria that the bank uh, used to assess uh, governance. And that even if you did... Uh, the average of the three historical best performers, you would reduce this to about a 70 to 20 year long period. So the general point is, these things take a much longer time than transitional justice practitioners at first thought. And uh, the truth is that I don't think that we have fully internalized that message uh, yet. And uh, it's important that we do, because otherwise we will get fiascos, like, for instance, the very early departure of the United Nations from Burundi, where the Arusha Peace Agreement of uh, 2000 included uh, Duli, 
reference to a comprehensive transitional justice measure, but a comprehensive transitional justice measure was never implemented. The UN mission came and went, and uh, there is still very little transitional justice having been done in Burundi. Do you see the lack of a long-term commitment to to these processes as, as one of the one of the greatest challenges in in ensuring that the process is effective? Yeah, I think that this is uh, one of the main factors. But the other one is what we were talking about before, the fact that in a certain sense, transitional justice has suffered from what some economists and organizational sociologists call, with a fancy name, isomorphic mimicry. In other words, the assumption that the very same institutional form will perform well regardless of circumstances. So this is not a problem that affects transitional justice exclusively. Think, for example, about the fate of anti-corruption commissions. Once the world came up with the idea that anti-corruption commissions were a good thing, then it decided that all countries needed one of exactly the same shape and that they would perform equally well. And of course, that has proven to be completely false. Well, in transitional justice, the equivalent uh, form of mimicry is the idea that, for example, a truth commission of essentially the same shape as the original ones was going to be equally useful everywhere. But uh, that, again, has proven to be (laughs) a mistaken assumption. Not all truth commissions have been (laughs) equally useful. When you think about it from the standpoint of institutional replication, and whether those, uh, there's uh, a fit to context, you realize that perhaps uh, the field should be a bit more experimental than it has been. The recommendations that we give uh, in Kinshasa and Bujumbura to go back to those two cities are suspiciously similar to the recommendations that we used to give in Buenos Aires and Santiago. And I think that we should be, again, suspicious about that. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's 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 clear that you can't adopt a one-size-fit-all uh, approach to things. And I think the laziness of the international community uh, may unfortunately promote such a such a practice. Toby, you know, I have some ambivalence about the explanation for the for the mimicry. On the one hand, yes, I think that it is laziness. On the other, I think that it has a lot to do with the processes of professionalization and particularly processes like that in a globalized and very interconnected world in which people travel a lot. So the advantage of all of this is that the learning curve is very, very fast. So for instance, I am Colombian, but I went to Colombia in 2003 
to start talking about transitional justice when the government of then-President Uribe was thinking about uh, what became the peace and justice law, the law for the demobilization of paramilitaries. At that time, very few people knew anything about transitional justice in Colombia. Three years later, there was nothing to be taught to Colombians about uh, transitional justice. And the, the reason why that uh, happened was that, of course, there were many Colombians that were doing masters and PhDs in universities uh, in both Europe and in the U.S. that had such programs. In the meantime, the field had already established a specialized journal. Later on, it acquired a specialized encyclopedia. So from the epistemic standpoint, from the academic standpoint, it became a field of study very, very rapidly. And that has the advantage of formalizing and disseminating information rapidly. From the practical standpoint, different ministries of foreign affairs decided to establish units dealing with the past to support transitional justice work in different parts. Those ministries hired consultants that traveled from one place to another. People in countries that were trying to establish programs organized conferences, international conferences, in order to learn from other experiences. So all of this has great advantages. The disadvantage, of course, is that it leads to a certain type of rigidities. After all, for example, in the academic world, demonstrating competence is demonstrating the familiarity with how things have been done elsewhere. And then the tendency to replicate is immense. So I don't think it's just laziness. It is also that whereas the first transitional justice activists were in the first generation in Argentina, for example, Carlos Nino and Eduardo Rabosi and Jaime Malamud, these were no transitional justice experts because there was no such thing as expertise in a field that was non-existent at the time. They were trying to give practical solutions to very, very difficult problems. Now, what people are trying to do is to find the most effective ways of establishing institutions that are very well known. My illustration of this, which I do not mean critically at all, but simply really as a descriptive illustration. When I visited the Gambia in April of 2018, I asked the Council of Ministers, the cabinet, how did you come up with the idea of establishing a truth commission in Gambia? A country which, by the way, is one where I think that a truth commission can actually do a lot of good, given the characteristics of the country and of the types of crimes that such a commission should investigate. So the ministers looked at one another in total silence until one of them said, well, wasn't this what we were supposed to do? <laughs> so 
I think that there is this uh, uh, sort of uh, rigidity and formalization that is uh, taking place and that obeys very complicated causes, some of which are great, uh, but some of which have uh, slightly pernicious effects, particularly in the absence of uh, self-reflection. I think that's that's one of the important points when you know you're referring to the rigidity of it and uh, the lack of self-reflection or self-awareness. I think I think it's an important um, point to to consider. One of the interesting things, uh, so moving on from that, that um, I was interested to read uh, from what you've written before is the the interplay of morality and politics in the field and. Justice, and you've you've sort of touched on that uh, a little bit in 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 terms of practical solutions and and uh, and how politics will will influence um, what is considered to be uh, a practical or impractical solution. Um, tell us a little bit about how you see the interplay of morality and politics in this field now. I was always convinced, uh, Toby, by the very old uh, sociological argument uh, that says that sustainable social change is not merely a question of clever institutional engineering, but that it needs to be accompanied by changes at the level both of culture and of personal dispositions. Sociologists uh, didn't pay too much attention to questions about economics, but I would uh, add that, of course, it is important to think about economic considerations when designing transitional justice uh, measures. One of the great difficulties uh, that I think uh, transitional justice encountered in a country like Burundi is that Burundi doesn't have uh, a formal labor market. So once people get into government, they have a great incentive to stay in it because the alternative is to go back to an informal uh, labor market, which is incredibly risky. And uh, that is almost a choice in favor of uh, poverty. So democratic transitions are very difficult in places that do not have an economic system and a labor system that supports rotation in government. But in any case, to go back to the original point, I think that it is very important to think about transitional justice not merely as a technocratic exercise of institutional redesign, but to think about the influence of both uh, culture and uh, personal dispositions, people's attitudes uh, towards others, uh, the way that they trust or mistrust uh, strangers, the way that they think about tolerance, the way that they think about uh, solidarity, and of course the way in which they, they may enjoy institutions that either support or undermine tolerance and solidarity, I think are very important factors to consider when one is thinking about social change. And by the way, this is a problem that is pertinent not just to developing countries in the South, but when you think about the state of politics 
where I am speaking from in the United States, one should also get the point. In any case, I think that given the formalization and the normalization of transitional justice, it should not be surprising that people anticipate that measures like these are coming and therefore that the temptation to politicize the measures has grown over time. At the same time, I think that it is very important for the transitional justice institutions to make full use of their potential. And I think that, for instance, truth commissions have great normative potential. They have a great ability to speak to people's sense of justice and to address directly their sense of grievance that may be historical, that may be very, very difficult to redress economically or via the criminal justice system, and that in some way the commissions have a space to fill, because my sense is that normative argumentation in the public sphere has suffered a lot, and that it is now mostly understood in terms of either legality or religious preaching, but the idea of uh, arguments concerning, for example, the common good or public goods or what is good for a country as a whole, there is no obvious mechanism uh, that can address this except that truth commissions can actually do it. I think that uh, truth commissions should take advantage of the fact uh, that they are themselves not exclusively technocratic, uh, justice-related, blame-attributing, guilt-distributing, and uh, punishment-distributing mechanisms in order to occupy a normative space that will be very important for people's understanding of the history of their country, but more importantly still, of the future of their country. The sense of whether people can live together as part of a shared political project depends a lot on satisfying simultaneously the sense of justice and the expectations of justice of many people. And that is not simply a criminal justice uh, project. It is also, to use a term that is uh, perhaps used far too often and not in sufficiently substantive terms, a social contract. And uh, a social contract is something that needs to be renewed periodically and especially after periods of uh, systematic violence. It's good that you're talking about the social contract because that was something that really interested me. You've actually put a great deal of focus on and that's in relation to establishing a proper framework for prevention that you came up with this framework when you were special rapporteur. Explain what that framework was broken down into into different um, components. Part of the idea came from... Uh, 
a study of the notion of guarantees of non-recurrence, which uh, was part of uh, the title of the mandate that I had. I had uh, the slightly ridiculous title of UN Special Rapporteur for the Promotion of Truth, Justice, Reparations, and Guarantees of Non-Recurrence. So what is this notion? It's a notion that is uh, used very, very infrequently outside UN circles or outside uh, the inter-American system of human rights, which has borrowed uh, the notion. But it's not very clear. There is no canonical definition of the term. So trying to write uh, reports on this notion I reached the conclusion, obviously it was a completely ambiguous notion, there are six United Nations documents that use this term, and they use it in very distinct, not necessarily consistent manners. Uh, that the best way to understand it was in terms of prevention, the prevention of uh, violations and the prevention of the recurrence of violations in the transitional justice uh, context. So that led me to study the way in which uh, discussions about prevention take place uh, within uh, the UN system. And uh, obviously, there is much to be said about that. I will point out only the following problems. First, they are mostly focused on the role of the international community in prevention, which is a great problem in an age in which there are heightened concerns about national sovereignty. So it makes discussions about prevention sort of (laughs) mind territory for most nation states, particularly those that need such initiatives the most. Secondly, most of the discussions concentrate very, very much on crisis prevention. In other words, on what can be done when the country is on the brink of a precipice to help it not fall off that cliff. But that means that a lot of preventive work that could have been done, as the system says, upstream, was not done. And then it is much harder to prevent uh, the crisis. So despite the fact that there is very strong consensus about the need to broaden and to upstream prevention work, it's the sort of thing that everyone pays lip service to, but no one had bothered to think through what it would involve. So what I was trying to do was precisely that, to say what would a broad and upstream prevention policy look like for a country? And it turns out that contrary to what people think, we actually know a lot about preventive measures. 
It's just that our knowledge is very, very fragmented and that people who do certain things do not talk with the people that do others, despite the fact that both of them are working in the domain of uh, prevention. So I started thinking about the possibility of drawing a framework, a sort of a matrix that would be populated by all those policies that we have found are useful in the prevention of human rights violations and as a consequence in the prevention of uh, conflict. And there is, of course, an indeterminate number of elements that a totally comprehensive uh, policy of this sort uh, would uh, have. Uh, it's important to emphasize this is not a blueprint. I don't think that there is a single policy that would help everywhere. But I think that there would be recurrent elements. So let me illustrate this. For instance, in the domain of security, there are different ways of policing, some of which are more effective in the prevention of abuses than others. Community policing programs have turned out to be, obviously, not a silver bullet, but quite useful in the reduction of police violations in most parts of the world. So to get countries to think about uh, the policies that they adopt when they instruct their police forces would be one of the elements of abroad prevention policies. Again, in the domain of security, it is important, uh, we have found out, to have effective civilian oversight mechanisms over the armed uh, forces to make sure that they respond to duly constituted authorities under constitutional provisions, that they are accountable for the way in which they exercise their power, deploy their force, but also, for example, manage their budgets and engage in acquisitions. This is a significant part of national budgets. It's a part of a national budget that is usually shrouded in secrecy, which invites both corruption and AIDS violations. So I think that effective civilian oversight mechanisms is something else that countries should look at if they are interested in a broad preventive policy. In the domain of uh, the legal and constitutional systems, for instance, it is important for countries to have a legal regime that provides certain guarantees to minority parties, to the political opposition. One of the reasons why electoral times are so fraught in so many countries is that, again, being out of power is to be ostracized, to be condemned to the total role of an outsider. And therefore, by contrast, a regime that provides protections for minority and opposition parties is something 
that it has been found out is useful in diminishing violence and uh, abuses. Strong oversight mechanisms, uh, the much-mentioned uh, division of uh, powers, independence of the judiciary, all these things that constitutionalists uh, think about, but that they rarely think about in the key of prevention, turn out to be very, very significant in the fight against uh, human rights uh, violations. And I could go on because, as I say, the number of elements of a comprehensive policy would be indeterminately large. But what I want to do is to create a framework that illustrates not just the fact that we know how to do these things, but that the initiatives are interconnected. So if you think about the examples that I just uh, gave you, there is, of course, a great overlap between the way that the armed forces exercise their power and the way that the Constitution defines those powers. I want to say that the framework is not just a random list of initiatives, but rather an interconnected set, open but interconnected set of initiatives that are useful for diminishing the likelihood that violations will take place in a country. And this incorporates some of the lessons that we were talking about before, that these are long-term projects, that these are not things that can be fixed uh, in uh, a couple of years, but rather, in a certain sense, that these are projects that involve both state formation, but also the shaping of inclusive, tolerant uh, cultures and uh, the corresponding personal dispositions. Which makes all perfect sense. But the difficulty is how do you convince like a, a military regime in Egypt, for example, that having uh, greater respect for human rights, fundamental freedoms, democratic principles will actually contribute to to economic growth, to political stability, and uh, and less extremism. How do you do that? How do you take that step? We have historical examples of how this uh, takes place, and this also returns us to an initial part of our conversation. There is no place that has managed to succeed in such uh, a project without the very important participation of uh, civil society. It is rarely a question of enlightenment. I don't think that it's very likely that the Egyptian military, for instance, will decide that their share of participation in all sectors of the Egyptian economy is something that is problematic, that they will decide this spontaneously through argumentation. I think that there are times in which political transformation calls for 
a certain type of uh, pressure, which unfortunately is often very costly for civil society, but that this is uh, the way that it usually takes place. And uh, again, not uh, that I think that this is uh, an easy task, but I think that uh, people should always uh, take solace from the fact that uh, it has happened. So uh, Archbishop Tutu was fond of saying, look, if uh, South Africa was capable of getting rid of apartheid, this should give hope uh, for others that are seeking major political transformation in their own countries. And I think that there's a sense in which uh, that is true. The truth is uh, that uh, I think that authoritarians usually make the mistake that it is hugely advantageous to hold all political strings. The truth is, however, that holding all political strings makes you wholly accountable and that there is a certain level of complexity illustrated by the notion of the division of powers that actually makes the life of institutions much easier than those that ignore at least that degree of complexity. In modern societies, I think that the idea of a monolithic center of power is one that turns out to be very costly, and very costly in different domains. Costly in terms of innovation, costly in terms of economics, costly in terms of what it takes to keep the center at the center and to fight and to fend off centrifugal forces. And of course, costly in terms of human rights, because that type of centralized exercise of authority is one that can only be bought at the price of violence. That's right. Um, um, I think hope plays a, a very, very important part of that. I mean, you, you mentioned Bishop Tutu. I mean, he also said that uh, hope is being able to see that there's light despite all of the darkness. And I think uh, it's something that we need to think of. Turning to just back for a moment to, to your role as UN Special Rapporteur, I'm happy that you commented on your title. I think. Uh, I mean, it was a, it's, it's a, it's a very <laughs> one which, which is full of, full of promise, full of promise challenge. <laughs> so um, I, I completely understand how how. Um, well, I think you made you you made the role what it was. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and I think it's what, possibly one of the more difficult challenges, and, and that was Sri Lanka. Yeah. Um, Having read your report, you know it was it was clear that there was a moment where we thought that there was going to be real change brought. Yeah, and that progress brought, brought by civil society, but then you know, unfortunately, the lack of uh, genuine reform by the government. How did you see that? Um, and was it what you expected, or did you expect the government to actually take hold of this opportunity to, to reform? 
to be perfectly honest, this is really one of the sources of greatest concern on my part. And not because the situation was the worst in terms of, for example, ongoing violations but because of the sense of possibility, precisely. When President Sirisena won his election surprisingly, to the surprise of everyone, there was a sense in which I thought this is a complete outlier. So here's a man that is running a campaign on the notion that the presidency has become too powerful and that it was important to devolve power to other branches of the state as well as to the regions. And that made him an outlier at the time, no? Uh, During a period in which executives are growing in power immensely, Uh, To run a campaign on that basis, I thought, was admirable, and that the country elected him, I thought, opened up uh, amazing possibilities for coming to grips with a very complicated history that, for me, went uh, well beyond the end of the conflict in 2009. So I was approached by the Sri Lankan government at first to make visits all in a technical advisory capacity, which I also thought was reflective of a great deal of interest on the part of the government to achieve something in this domain. So one should not forget uh, Sri Lanka co-sponsored the Human Rights Council unusually a very demanding resolution concerning transitional justice and its undertook commitments along the four elements of a comprehensive transitional justice policy. It was at the very same time inviting other special procedures human rights and counter-terrorism, torture, judicial independence, enforced disappearance. I mean, it was really very, very active and very open in its interactions with uh, the international human rights system. So I did have uh, great hopes uh, about what it was uh, trying to do. And uh, the initial moves that it took in Sri Lanka, as in most countries that face problems like this for the very first time, there was very little pre-existing expertise about this topic. And this is true both in civil society as in government. But the government established an office to centralize the planning of these activities of these initiatives in a relatively short period of time and civil society as it usually happens, it took the opportunity and uh, a climbing on the very steep uh, learning curve that we talked about before 
learned about this in a very short period of time and did something absolutely exemplary in my mind, which was to run a national consultation process uh, organized by a body appointed by the government but uh, made up exclusively of civil society representatives. And it was civil society that in a very short period of time organized an extraordinarily successful national consultation process. And uh, I want to stress the national because it went into the provinces very, very deeply. So there were all sorts of signs about uh, seriousness in this endeavor. It is true, of course, that there was always a, how to characterize it, and the resistance at first would have been an exaggeration, but a great deal of care and reservation about how to deal with the criminal justice dimension of this. But like many others, I understood this not as total resistance, but rather as the sort of inevitable prudence that comes from the fact that newly established civilian authorities face an extraordinarily powerful a military apparatus that was left in the wake of the conflict. So it is not unusual for that relationship to be fraught and to require a great deal of attention. But there was a long period of time in which uh, even conversations with the military about the transitional justice uh, process were moving in very positive directions. So yes, to give a short answer, I was totally surprised and in many ways uh, extraordinarily sad about the fact that the country missed an opportunity that it had within its reach. Because there were sectors of the Sri Lankan government that were totally committed to the idea of a serious examination of the country's past, totally committed to the idea that in a country in which every community had victims, it should be possible to implement a transitional justice program that addressed those grievances. And in the end, I think that they squandered it, unfortunately. I, I certainly remember at the time, um, I, I mean, I was involved in the situation in Bangladesh at the time, and obviously what was happening in Sri Lanka uh, was having an impact um, but what 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 I recall is, um, and and I, and I'm curious as to whether you you see this as a contributing factor for why the the, the Sri Lankan government was able to to backtrack. But the U.S. administration at the time, through the State Department, was pushing in the Human Rights Council for there to be an international judicial mechanism, and then suddenly it changed to a domestic. Um, mechanism that would effectively be maybe supported by the international community, but it would be a domestic mechanism. Do you think that that had 
uh, an impact on um, the government seeing that there was less pressure on them to do something. Sri Lanka is one of those places which is impossible to understand without understanding geopolitical considerations. Sri Lanka is both blessed and cursed by the fact that it is geographically very proximate to India, that it is of great interest to China, and uh, that it is on and off of great interest uh, to the U.S. And I think that uh, Sri Lanka has learned very well how to play the game of uh, extracting benefits and concessions from uh, those uh, three powers depending on its needs. And uh, I think that over time, in the, after the election of President uh, Sirisena, the geopolitical considerations shifted in favor of the U.S. and the U.K., not just uh, the U.S. And... Uh, as a consequence also of the EU taking a much more conciliatory, flexible, less demanding attitude with respect to Sri Lanka, at least in part because of their worry of increased influence by China in Sri Lanka. So... This is a complicated uh, constellation of factors, uh, but one that uh, very able Sri Lankan politicians understand extremely well. And now, unfortunately, what we've seen is Rajapaksha almost coming coming full circle and then being um, being back at the helm of politics. Now, I recently learned by accident that he was actually invited as a chief guest to a UN panel discussion or a UN event. How do you see that for, for the victims in Sri Lanka, that um, this man in particular um, is, is, is now back in government and invited as a chief guest to a UN event? I think that this is uh, an unspeakable mistake. Uh, really, uh, given the history of uh, the United Nations in uh, Sri Lanka and uh, the sense of abandonment uh, on the part, uh, particularly of the Tamil population by the UN, to have uh, Prime Minister Rajapaksa being the chief guest uh, in a UN celebration uh, of anything, the 75th anniversary of the creation of the institution. I think it's uh, inexplicable to me. We, we've, we've spoken um, quite a bit about how, how things have evolved. Do you see now that we're sort of entering a time where legal initiatives have to be sort of more innovative than ever before? 
Absolutely. And uh, Sri Lanka is some place where, incidentally, this uh, is very clear that given the internal lack of action, Toby, I think uh, that uh, things uh, of the sort uh, that uh, Guernica does, including uh, universal jurisdiction cases, would be extraordinarily useful in the case of uh, Sri Lanka. The first case against uh, a member of the Sri Lankan Armed Forces, former ambassador in Brazil, was uh, brought. This uh, created some shocks uh, within uh, the country. Among other things, uh, and uh, this is something that I was able to point out during my last visit and in my report to the Human Rights Council, it uh, demonstrated how empty the rhetoric uh, used uh, to protect uh, the military in Sri Lanka was. Uh, because the reality is that, uh, yes, uh, the Sri Lankan courts may fail to initiate investigations and prosecutions, but to the extent uh, that there are people and institutions like uh, Gernika that are willing to look into the behavior of the armed forces and to bring up uh, uh, universal jurisdiction cases, and to the extent that there are jurisdictions that are willing uh, to take on those cases, uh, the legal certainty of the Sri Lankan military is uh, brought into question. And I think that that is all to the good. And you know that Guernica is now working with the Dutch government on potentially taking the issue of violations of the Torture Convention in Syria to the International Court of Justice. Do, do you see that that is a process that could have an impact on, on states such as Syria? potentially even a state such as Sri Lanka? Toby, I think that in the sort of cases that we worry about, where there have been massive and systematic violations and the universe of victims is huge and they're suffering both individually and collectively unspeakable. The scales of justice are turned so much against the victims that anything that one can do in order to try to change that balance is worth considering. So I am completely supportive of innovative approaches. I was delighted by the fact that the General Assembly was not content with the stalemate in the Security Council a great shame to the council and uh, decided to establish the mechanism to try to preserve evidence. I think that universal jurisdiction cases are important. Uh, I think that everything that can be done in order not to let things like this be inconsequential is something that people should try. And therefore, I applaud uh, Guernica for its willingness to try this on. And uh, I certainly hope uh, that it turns out to be successful and influential. (music) 
I'd like to ask you a question that we we like to ask. First of all, what does accountability mean to you? And what can and what should we be doing better? For me, the question of accountability is very deeply wound up with the idea that we are in this together that uh, human beings uh, are not uh, free radicals spinning around uh, empty space, that what happens to one has significance to what happens uh, to others. And therefore, we are accountable to each other, meaning that we are not free to do whatever we want solely to serve individual interests, be those uh, the uh, interests of persons or of uh, particular groups, including nation states. I am in many ways still unapologetically a totally committed Kantian universalist. And therefore I think that there is something that binds all of us together. And uh, this is uh, the core idea behind uh, accountability, that because we are bound together, we are accountable to each other. Now, I do not think of accountability exclusively in terms of uh, criminal justice, and one of the reasons why I gravitated towards uh, transitional justice was precisely the fact that uh, transitional justice operated on the basis of uh, a more complex understanding of justice than that which reduces it to what happens in a court of law that it also cared about uh, the recognition of victims that comes from uh, truth-telling processes, that it also cares about uh, the incipient and always incomplete uh, possibilities of reconstructing life projects uh, that are embodied in uh, reparations programs and that it always took seriously the idea that it is uh, important not just to worry about uh, redress, but also to worry about uh, prevention. That sort of unpacking of the notion of accountability that is uh, that underlies uh, transitional justice was always uh, attractive uh, to me. So... That's the answer to the first part of your question. To the second one, what should we be doing better? I think that, again, being a bit less formulaic than we have become, thinking less about the process of accountability as if it were simply a question of uh, an institutional technocratic uh, project and thinking more in addition, not instead of, but in addition about uh, other dimensions of the process of uh, accountability is something that we should be doing much better. So ironically, 
we have never had better means of communication in human history. And at the same time, I think that we have never been as unfamiliar in proportion to the possibilities of knowledge and communication. We have never been as unfamiliar with the way that others have to live their lives. And therefore, I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done in order to become more familiar with uh, the travels that others uh, have uh, to suffer. I think that any meaningful idea of uh, human solidarity, for example, which is also a concept that is very dear to me, is one that is both expressed by and that requires familiarity with the life of others. And uh, given what we have in terms of possibilities of communication, we should be doing much better. It is very clear that there are effective ways of narrowing the scope of solidarity. And we have seen it recently in uh, the drift, uh, the political drift of many countries towards uh, a new sort of uh, tribalism. I think that there's a lot to be learned from that uh, a contrarian about how to expand the scope of human solidarity so that at the very least, minimum conditions for a decent human life can be achieved. And those, of course, are what human rights were supposed to express. Wonderful. The great thing about doing this podcast is I I, I get to have a discussion um, with extraordinary and wonderful people like you, Pablo. So what I can only say is thank you for, for spending the time with us. Toby, you are so kind. Thank you very much for the invitation and thank you very much for the patience. And this is uh, a pleasure. The Guernica Accountability Podcast is about accountability in different parts of the world and what it means to each of us. Truth, justice and accountability. This is a subject that we at Guernica are very passionate about. We hope that you walk away from this with a better understanding of transitional justice and what it means. And in particular, what Pablo spoke about, the need for truth, justice, prevention, and non-recurrence. If you enjoy these podcasts, as we hope you do, please do follow the series on our website and feel free to post on social media with any comments you may have. You can find our website at www.guernica37.com where you can find more details about what we do and find all of the podcasts in our series. You can also find us on Twitter at GuernicaLaw37 on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn. We hope to bring you interesting accounts from all around the world. Next week we'll be bringing a different approach to accountability. Thank you for listening. This is the Guernica Accountability Podcast. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.